Okay, and for the rest of us, if we could um, open our Bibles to Philippians 2. It's good to be back with you. I had a great week in Vancouver, week before last, and learned a lot about Proverbs. And um, I took another class on Christianity and public life and law and policy and stuff like that, which was really fascinating. But now we're back and uh, in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 831 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you if you're looking on in that Bible. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. A man went to a doctor um, after a week of symptoms, and the doctor examined this man carefully, and then he called the patient's wife into his office. And he said, your husband is suffering from a rare form of anemia. And without treatment, he'll be dead in a few weeks. But the good news is that that this can be treated with a proper diet. So this is what you need to do. You need to get up early every morning and fix your husband a hot breakfast, pancakes, bacon and eggs, the works. He'll need a home-cooked lunch every day and a good old-fashioned meat and potatoes dinner every night. And it would be especially helpful for your husband's health if you could bake uh, fresh cakes and pies and and breads. These are the things that will allow your husband to live. Oh, and one one more thing. (laughs) Your husband's immune system is weak, so it's important that your home be kept spotless at all times. Do you have any questions? Well, the wife had none. Do you want to break the news or should I? The doctor asked. And the wife said, I will. And so she walked into the exam room and her husband was sensing the seriousness of his illness. And he said, it's bad, isn't it? And she nodded, tears welling up in her eyes. What's going to happen to me? He he asked. And with a sob, the wife blurted out, the doctor says you're going to die. Well, gender role stereotypes aside, uh, how would you like to have a spouse with an attitude like that? The scripture text that we're looking at this morning is about our attitude. When your life bumps up against the lives of others, what's your attitude? When your wants and needs clash with the wants and needs of others, what's your attitude? The Apostle Paul tells us that God, or he tells us what God wants our attitude to be in our passage this morning. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Let's take a mental quiz for a second. Think of the various aspects of being a Christian which are important. For example, praying and reading your Bible, going to church, sharing your faith with others, investing, giving your money toward God's purposes, becoming more patient and forgiving, things like that. Now think, and I want you to think on a scale of 1 to 10 here, How important is this aspect, this aspect of having an attitude of humility so that you consider others more important than yourselves? How important is that on a scale of 1 to 10, just mentally 
take the quiz, see what number you come up with. Okay, second and last question. Again, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much are you longing and asking and cooperating with God to work that attitude into your life? And how much progress are you seeing? If you think about the last two or three years, are you more humble? Are you more apt to prefer other interests to your own? So on 1 to 10, how much are you leaning into and succeeding at developing in that attitude? I want to argue this morning that if you did not score a 9 or a 10 on both of those questions, your Christianity needs some major reprioritizing. Because what Paul calls us to in today's text is not secondary or optional. It's rather absolutely primary and fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Today's passage has had a major transforming impact on my life. This is actually um, the only sermon that I get to preach in August. That's just the way the schedule worked out, and we'll be on vacation for a couple weeks later in August. And when I saw that we were spending August in the book of Philippians, and, and I realized that of the five texts that we're covering in Philippians, this week, or my week, happened to land on this text, I was thrilled. You see, I misunderstood this text for years. I read it and loved it, but I never really grasped the earth-shattering message that this text proclaims. About ten years ago, a sermon by one of my favorite preachers, Daryl Johnson, opened my eyes, though, and, and turned the lights on for me. And I, I went to the commentaries just to make sure that that new insight that I got from that sermon was on the money as to what this text is actually teaching, and the commentaries agreed that it was. And I wondered, how did I miss it all those years? How did I miss what this text is saying? So let's take a closer look at this passage, especially at verses 6 to 11, and see if we can all make this amazing discovery if we haven't already. Verses 6 to 11 are a wonderful text, aren't they? Does anyone else love these verses? This passage soars to the highest heavens. It, it, it gives us a window into God's own heart and character. It comes down to earth where we live and, and points us to the ultimate act of love in Christ's terrible death on the cross. And then it ascends again to the heights where Christ is crowned with glory and honor as we were just singing as Lord over rulers and powers and authorities. Wow, what a text. What gives this text such power, among other things, is its poetic quality. Scholars debate whether these verses are actually quoting from an ancient hymn that was sung by the early church. And whether or not they are, these verses clearly do have a poetic quality to them. And, and they're vivid. To fully understand this passage and, and to clearly see the amazing discovery that the passage offers, we're going to have to focus in on and clearly understand some of the potent, meaning-packed words that we find here. So if you'll stick with me for about the next 10 minutes or so and pay careful attention, I want to walk through some careful thinking about some important words that we find here. And this will set the stage for an amazing conclusion, which I promise will be well worth it. 
Okay, so I'm going to use the NIV translation, which many of us have, and I'll reference the Greek words as necessary and mention other possible translations for them. And in your bulletin, there's a yellow handout, which you can pull out, um, especially if you take notes, which will help you track through these words. The first word, it's a, a dark yellow, mustard yellow insert if you're looking for it. And the first word that we need to take a look at is the word very nature. Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The Greek word translated very nature here is morphe, morphe. Most other translations translate morphe to mean uh, or translate it more literally as form. Jesus being in the form of God. Now, in English, the word form can be confusing. Because in English, to take the form of something doesn't necessarily mean that you are that something. For example, when you're at the seashore, with a little youthful expertise, the sand can take the form of a castle, right? But that doesn't mean that the sand becomes a castle or is a castle. It's still sand. We can take the form of something, the shape of something, without actually being that something. At least that's the way that we use the word form in English. So in English, we could say that Jesus was in the form of God, and we wouldn't necessarily mean that Jesus was God. But not so in Greek. Because the Greek word morphe refers not just to how something appears on the outside, its shape, but it also refers to what it essentially is on the inside. It's reality. That's why the NIV rightly translated, translates it as very nature. Jesus was and is in very nature God. Not just that he looks like God on the outside, but that he was and is really God through and through. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, next word. We'll pass over the word consider for now. We'll come back to it. Let's go on to the word grasped. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The Greek word here is harpagmos, and it's notoriously hard to translate. This word doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It rarely appears in Greek literature at all. And where it does appear, it appears as the word robbery. But it can't mean that here. At least no one is really been able to figure out how it could mean robbery here. So over the years, scholars have argued vigorously about how to translate this word in a clear way, which will make sense to us. And I'll spare you all the gory details, and I'll get to the heart of the issue. Harpagmos could have two possible basic meanings. First, it could refer to holding on to or benefiting from something you already have. So many of the newer translations, like the TNIV, translate it. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something he has that he holds on to and uses for his own advantage. On the other hand, harpagmos could also refer to grabbing something that you don't have. That's the way the NIV seems to translate it. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Many interpreters argue that this is the more likely translation, but it raises the question, in what sense could Jesus possibly grasp at equality with God? Doesn't this open up the possibility that he's not, in fact, God after all, if he has to grasp at being God? 
Well, we already saw the word morphe means that he is in very nature God. So if he is already in very nature God, in what sense could he consider grasping after equality with God? Do you see the question? Well, commentator Alec Motyer gives the best answer that I've heard. And actually, he answers it by asking some further questions, as any good uh, uh, wise sage would do. And by these questions, he cautiously and reverently plums the mysteries of the Godhead. He asks, could the son have been tempted to usurp the father? Could there be a glory of the father, which as son he might have sought to possess? Could he have wearied of the incognito that he endured throughout the Old Testament centuries? Or could he have been tempted to rush his lordship over all creation instead of waiting patiently on the Father's plan? In other words, could Jesus have somehow had the choice to grab greater glory for himself? Is Paul saying here that that's what Jesus did not, in fact, choose to do? Well, in the end, this question of exactly what herpagamas means remains unsolved. But either way, I think we get the gist of what Paul is saying, right? Blank looks, hopefully. Jesus, whose God, did not, in fact, grasp or hold on to equality with God. That's the point. Let's move on to the next word. Rather, he made himself nothing. Literally, the word is he emptied himself. It's the Greek verb kenao, and this word has spawned yet another theological debate. I wish Dave Deal was still, he had to go preach at another church. I wish he was here for this because he'd appreciate this. The debate goes by the name of, of the Greek word, again, kenao. It's the debate about kenosis. And the debate is about the question of just what did Jesus empty himself of when he became a human being? Did he empty himself of all of his godness? Did he cease to be God? Or did he empty himself of just some of his divine attributes, like his power and his being all-knowing? Did he empty himself of those things? Or did Jesus retain all of what it means to be God, but just empty himself of the comforts and prerogatives and glories of being God? Well, most evangelical theologians, and, and Dave is a theologian, that's why I referred to him, most go with the third of these options, that Jesus did not empty himself of anything of what it means to be God. He just emptied himself of of the perks and prerogatives of being up in heaven and being God. But I'm with several recent commentators who avoid the whole issue by pointing out that Paul doesn't say that Jesus emptied himself of anything. Rather, he says that he emptied himself That is simply, he abased himself. He made himself nothing. He lowered himself. He emptied himself. Paul goes on to explain what this means, that he emptied himself. It means that he took the very nature of a servant. That's what, uh, or very nature is that word morphe again. The very nature of a servant, the form of a servant. And servant is the next word we need to look at. He took the very nature of a servant. It's the Greek word doulos, and literally it means slave. Someone with no rights, no control over himself or his circumstances, 
no property, a slave. God, the Lord of all, became a slave, our slave. Next word, likeness and appearance. Two words, actually. Being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man. Likeness can mean an image or a copy, like a photocopy. And appearance focuses on the outward appearance. Jesus looked, he walked, he talked just like a human being. Now, historically, some have taken this to mean that Jesus wasn't, in fact, actually a man, a human being. That he was God in a human disguise. But if you look at the whole teaching of the New Testament, you see that this can't be true. And so Paul isn't using words like likeness and appearance to say that Jesus just looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. Rather, Paul is using these words to point out that while Jesus really was a man, he wasn't just a man. He was a man all right, but he was more than a man. He was both God and man. Jesus, who is God himself, didn't hold on to the prerogatives and perks of being God, but rather he emptied himself. God became a slave, a mere human being. Next word, and the last few words aren't on your sheet. They're quite straightforward. And I ran out of room. The next word is humbled. Jesus humbled himself. It was a big step down to become one of us. It required great humbling for the Lord of the universe to become a slave. Next word, obedient. Jesus became obedient to death. The maker, the giver of life, submitted himself and became obedient to death. Now, what is death? Well, if you know the famous verse in Romans, Paul says it's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death is is the consequence of our sin, of our turning away from God. We rebelled against God, the source of life, and so we all die. But here's God who, who knows only life, who is life, who is the source of life, and he becomes obedient to death, the very consequence of our disobedience. As Lauren Wilkinson, who was once a professor of mine, put it, in the cross, we see who God is, subjecting himself to the consequences of his creation. That leads us to the last word, cross. Even death on a cross. For the people of Paul's day, to die on a cross was the absolute worst thing that could happen to you. It was the ultimate torture, the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate shame, the ultimate curse. So abhorrent and so scandalous was crucifixion in Roman society that the word crucifixion was almost a curse word. It was not to be spoken in polite company. That is what the Son of God left the blessings and benefits of heaven to come down and choose for himself. Wow. Okay. Now we're ready to see the amazing discovery 
of this passage, as if all of that wasn't amazing enough. This insight, which somehow I missed for all those years, and and to see it, we need to focus in on one final word, the word consider in verse 6. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. Jesus did not consider. Jesus did not consider equality with God to be. Jesus did not consider equality with God to be X. Rather, he considered equality with God to be Y. Let me give you a picture to visualize what's going on here. I I get this picture from Daryl Johnson, and I find it really helpful to make really clear what Paul's saying here. Picture Jesus sitting up in heaven. He's by very nature God. He is God through and through. And he's sitting in heaven considering what it means to be God. What it means that he's equal with God, that he is God. And as he considers what it means to be God, he considers that being God does not mean X, but rather being God means Y. He considers that being God does not mean grasping, gaining, seeking your own benefit. But rather being God means emptying yourself and becoming a slave. Did you hear that? To be God, Godness, does not consist of enjoying all the comforts and prerogatives of being perfect and all powerful. Rather, to be God, Godness, consists of giving up, of surrendering, of self sacrificing in love. For others. Jesus redefines what it means to be God. Or so it seems to us. More accurately, Jesus does not redefine what it means to God. He actually clarifies and highlights what, in fact, it has always meant to be God. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth put it this way. He says, for God It is just as natural to be lowly as to be high. To be near as it is to be far. To be little as it is to be great. St. Augustine adds, Proud man and woman would have died had not a lowly God found him and her. A lowly God. I find this to be absolutely astounding and absolutely revolutionary. You see, I'd always assumed that in going to the cross, Jesus was choosing to be ungodlike. That for the Son of God to become a lowly slave was a paradox, an, an incongruity, a, a contradiction. How could God, the greatest, most powerful, most exalted being, become the lowliest, most abased creature? But now I see it's not incompatible with God at all. Rather, it's totally in keeping with what it means to be God. Let me say this a different way. Let's say I take my family on a luxurious cruise from Seattle to Alaska. 
And while we're out there on the deck, one of my kids falls into the cold water. I would jump in after them to rescue them in a heartbeat. I'd rather be on the warm, safe boat, but I would temporarily give up that comfort because I love my children. I would act in an uncharacteristic way for that moment of time. But for God to jump in would not be uncharacteristic at all. Because God is the kind of being who jumps in all the time. He's a lifesaver by his very nature. He's humble. He's giving. God is a servant. So what motivated Jesus to give up all the benefits of being God and to come down and rescue us? Notice Paul doesn't say anything about our need. Sure, Jesus came down to save us because we needed him to. But Paul doesn't even go there in this passage. No, the the only reason Paul gives here is that to come down and to save us is what Jesus considered equality with God to mean. Let me say that another way. Paul does not say here that Jesus came down and bore the cross in spite of his being God. No, he says that Jesus came and bore the cross exactly because he is God. Because it is in God's very nature to empty himself, to give up what he has to lower himself, to give himself away for the sake of others. You know, John's gospel really works out this theme. In John's gospel, Jesus came to reveal to us what God is like. That was in the opening reflection this morning. And there's a lot in John's gospel about Jesus being glorified. And it's as Jesus is glorified that he reveals to us what God is like. And when is Jesus most glorified in John's gospel? On the cross, right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is most glorified in John's gospel when he's hanging on the cross. That means that Jesus is showing us most and best what God is like when Jesus is hanging on that cross. Do you want to know what God is really like? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for God's enemies. That is what God is like. Because when it comes to seeing what God is like, as Martin Luther puts it, and I've quoted this before, Jesus is the only God we've got. Wow. I don't know if this is amazing for you. It was amazing for me the first time I heard it, and it's still amazing every time I think about it. So how do we apply this to our lives? If the Son of God could sit in heaven considering what it means to be equal to God and could conclude that to be God means to empty yourself and become a slave and and to die on a cross then what does it mean for us to be human? 
If that's what it means to be God, what does it mean for us to be human? What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be a creature designed to reflect the very likeness of God? Well, it must mean the same thing, mustn't it? You see, I used to think of myself just like I used to think of Jesus. I thought I was made to be great, that I was made for the pleasures of the Garden of Eden. I was made to enjoy paradise, to enjoy the good life. Don't you feel that way very often? And of course, sin came into the world and ruined my chances, or at least reduced my chances. And then Jesus comes along and he bids me to take up my cross and to follow him. And I assumed that that he meant that I must deny my nature, at least temporarily, that Jesus is trying to straighten out what's wrong with the world. And and as his follower, he needs me to temporarily serve and sacrifice to help him get the job done. In other words, I thought serving and self-sacrifice were, were, uh, sorry, necessary evils, so to speak, until Jesus' kingdom fully comes. But now I see that just as that was a wrong view of Jesus and of God, that that's a wrong view of myself. This passage has taught me that serving and giving isn't something I do as a Christian in spite of being human, but rather it's something I do exactly because lowering myself to serve and to give is what it means to be human. Let me say that again. This passage has taught me that lowering myself and giving is exactly what it means to be human. Serving and sacrificing, humbling yourself are not necessary evils against your nature. They're rather the truest and purest essence of our human nature. Now, granted, in our sinful state, we don't feel that way, right? But that's because we've fallen and we've become less than fully human. But Jesus has come to restore us, to make us fully what God intended and created us to be again. Several years ago, um, at our former church, I preached a similar message to this from John's Gospel, chapter 13, where Jesus, it's the story of him taking the basin and the towel and in the upper room washing his disciples' feet, stooping down to serve them. And if you look closely at that passage, it teaches the same amazing lesson as Philippians does here. And the key phrase I used in that sermon was that we are actually made to serve. And... I made a comment, something to the effect of, we should all wear T-shirts that say made to serve on them. And someone in the church after that sermon made me that T-shirt. Made to serve. That is ultimately who we are as human beings. We are creatures designed to give ourselves away, to love, and to serve others. And as we do that, we show the world what God is really like. 
So let's get back to my original quiz questions about what our attitude should be. How important is it that we have the attitude of Jesus, being humble and considering others better than ourselves? It's a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. It's the very essence of what it means to be a human being. And there are a million ways to live out this attitude every day. At first, I was afraid to wear this T-shirt around the house. But over the years, I've gotten more bold and I've been learning to lean in to my new identity. How do you respond when a spouse or a parent or a child even asks you to do something which isn't your job or which isn't fair? How do you respond when they treat you unfairly? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, Paul says. Just like him, you are made to serve. Several years ago, I read an example of how this works out from the business world. Uh, JetBlue was a new airline in 2004, and that year it won the number one ranking in the Airline Quality Rating Awards. And JetBlue CEO and founder David Neeleman could bask in the glory of this number one ranking, but he's too busy doing what he calls servant leadership, this article said. While he flies around the country on his airplane, which he does regularly, he's just one of the crew members. He passes out snacks and blankets with the flight attendants. He sits in the cockpit and chats with the pilots, and he joins the team even that cleans the planes. You can't ask employees to do something you wouldn't be willing to do yourself, he says. Made to serve. At home, at work, at school, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Made to serve. Let's pray. As we pray, I invite you, if you want, to hold your hands up to God and just in your heart say, Here I am, God. You made me to serve. God, we part, part of us resonates with this, and we feel deep down, we know deep down that this is true. And we see that some of the most fulfilled people around us are the people who are good at forgetting themselves and caring for others. And yet in our fallenness, our bent, twisted, warped part rails against this and becomes afraid. Thank you that you didn't impose this on us first, but because it's in your very nature, you came down and lived it out. And Jesus on the cross is the fullest expression of who you are. And we see, God, that because we're made in your image, it is therefore the fullest expression of who we are created to be. God, thank you um, that because Jesus got it and so fully understood what it means to be God, you lifted him up to the highest place and exalted him above every other name and said, here is someone fit to sit on the throne of the universe and to order and lead all things. Thank you that you are redeeming us to give us a place, though we give ourselves away, 
that ultimately you will give us a place in enjoying all the benefits and privileges of walking with Jesus into that reality. And I pray that you would take this message that we are made to serve and that you are a servant God and you would burn it deep into our consciousnesses and that we would be a church who shows the world the good news that this is the only way to be human. We ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.